Welcome to the Morse Code Podcast, where we talk with entrepreneurially-minded creatives in music, film, and writing. My name is Corby, and I'm hoping these conversations inspire you to push deeper into your own work, whether you're a full-time professional or just starting out on your own creative odyssey. Really excited to share this conversation with novelist, short story writer, essayist, and educator, Katie McDougall. Katie co-founded the Porch Writers Collective, a venture she started with fellow writer Susanna Feltz back in 2014. Since its inception, the Porch has grown to offer 70 classes with more than a thousand members. As a writer, Katie's awards have included a four-week writing residency at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts, a Journals Award nomination for Colorado State University, and she was also a finalist for the Paul Gillette Writing Contest. Her debut novel, The Color Wheel, was a staff pick and top 10 bestseller at Parnassus Books, and her work has appeared in many journals, including Litmosphere, Barcelona Review, and Story Glossy. She's also a good friend of mine. If you get something out of the Morse Code podcast, please like and subscribe. And now here's my conversation with Katie McDougall. Katie. Corey. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) This is so great. You're so busy. I feel really lucky to have pinned you down. Oh my gosh. I mean... You're writing, you're organizing, you're shaping the the largest literary collective of its kind in the Southeast. I think I have that right. Oh, uh, yeah, you have that right. You have that right. And um, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, but maybe as a jumping off point, we could talk about how we met. Yes. And I would love to hear your version of, of this story and maybe uh, we'll triangulate on the, the yeah. actual truth. Uh, I remember I've told this story so many times before because it was really one of our kind of pivotal moments in a sense. Uh, we met at the Dose on the West Side. Yep. And I remember it was maybe it was uh, you and me and Susanna, Susanna Feltz, yes, who's the exactly. co-founder of the Porch yes. Literary Collective. I should say yes. that out, out, out in front. Right. Um, yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Susanna and I in those days were like taking every meeting that came our way. We just, you know, just... Because uh, when you start something new, you never know what doors will be open. But uh, I remember it was raining outside. I remember you maybe broke your key in the car or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that sounds like. And then the guys like next door at the liquor store came over and demanded you move your car. There was just it was not a you know <laughs> it, was a, it wasn't a normal meeting. <laughs> but uh, the I moment that, that I remember remember so well is. You're sort of saying, well, you know, the the problem with uh, literature, literary events, is they're just not performative like music is. You know, like what we need is uh, Tim O'Brien, the musician, with Tim O'Brien, the author, and we'll call it Tale of Two Tims, and we all kind of laughed. And then I said, I actually know Tim O'Brien, the author. And you were like, uh, I can get in touch with Tim O'Brien, the musician. <laughs> and boom, we made that thing happen. It happened so fast. And it really changed the trajectory of the porch because that was, we did that in January of 2015. So we had just, you know, had a year under our belt. And um, we had TV coverage. Uh, you know, we, 225 people came to that event. It so sold suddenly out. it sold out. Yeah. yeah. People were in the upstairs balcony of uh, Green Door Gourmet Barn. And, uh, and so, Ever since then, like that expanded our mailing list by lots. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so you're part of our history. Um, I am honored 
And uh, I was so happy to have been part of that. And it actually changed my life as well, which is um, in the sense that you guys invited me to open for the the show. I kicked it off with a couple of yes. songs. And um, I played this song that I wrote with uh, my friend Megan McCormick called My Little Life on the ukulele. Yeah. And, and the lit nerd. I love that and song. The, and the, oh, yeah. Book nerd. Yeah. Book nerd. Yeah, totally. Nerd, yeah. So I play the, my, my, my two greatest hits. And <laughs> at the end of the show, I... Um, this woman walked up to me and she was like, hey, you, you said you had a book or something for sale? And we can com compare notes on this a little bit later in our conversation, but I had self-published this book called Medium Hero, a collection of short stories. And um, long story short, she was the acquisitions manager at Turner Publishing. Stephanie Beard is her name. We're good friends to this day. Yeah. And they published that book. And so that would not have happened except for that event. So I owe you guys a great deal well, of gratitude. Good things come from taking coffee meetings. But the book was how we had originally met because you had it. You were selling it at Parnassus. That's right. And I think Karen Hayes said, hey, you should meet Corby and, and you know. You said coffee, and we said yes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, so it was destined to be, in a way. Destined to be. And you were also on our board for uh, for the next Probably four years. years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, So I've had a front door seat to the growth and the evolution, and I mean, it went from just being kind of a dream between two talented people to uh, a sort of a force of nature here in the area. I mean, it's to me, it's like everybody knows the porch. You guys, sweet. how many classes are you offering or do you know, can you keep track? I know um, it So changes. this fall we have, uh, I think ballpark 60 offerings. Um, so maybe, I don't, uh, more than that probably, uh, 40 to 50 classes and then um, brown bag lunches happy hours we're, we're doing what are brown um, bag lunches those are um kind of if, if someone wants to dip their toe in for an hour and see what the porch is up to and they mm. tend to be things a little bit more well actually that's not true some of them are professionally based like um we've got one uh on seo um like how to make a good SEO. Yeah, that's how I would put that because I know so little about it. I should take that class. Right. So like also kind of some publishing type classes, but sure. I'm also teaching one called Possibilities of Plot uh, in a couple of couple of weeks. So lower price point, um, shorter amount of time. Mm -hmm. So we have those. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've got over 150 classes a year these days. Amazing, so, and that's in service to people with interests in the in writing. Uh, at every level, right, or as many levels as possible from the full-time professional to like the maybe I should write a, my first paragraph right. type of person. That's one of my favorite things. Um, you know, over the years I've, I've taught at the porch also, and these days I teach less than I used to, but I always love finding out who's at the table on that very first session or, you know, first hour and uh, it's always amazing that it's a mix of uh, somebody just graduated from college and moved to Nashville and they loved creative writing in college mm -hmm. to someone's mid-career and just want something that is, you know, creative and, and their own to um, Empty Nester, who finally has time to write this novel um, to, you know, 75-year-old retired judge who uh is writing historical fiction you know so yeah 
everyone bound by a common desire to pursue themselves into the unknown, right? For its own sake or for another sake, but at least also, but also for its own sake. Right. People find writing in a lot of different ways. Uh, but yes, bound or all kind of bound by whatever that entry is, whether it's curiosity or discovery or just, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to have you on this podcast, because a lot of what that's about and what I, I guess I'm about in some way is this idea of of what creative work is does for the person doing the creating and um i've had you know like a lifelong journey of sort of being in that and then in witnessing it as well and noticing that um the things the artistic moments in my life be they music or or writing have meant so much more to me when i was um when it seemed like the people that were doing it were doing it because they wanted to do it you know and that's a that's a bad way of talking about it but um here's a story to illustrate it better when i was in college i was i always had a little bit of music talent when i was a kid and i was super interested and i had a high school band and uh in college i had various bands I was a fish junkie and I was a, a music major in college and I was like I would transcribe Trey Anastasio guitar solos in my free time I just was like a dork about it and also like driven toward I didn't know what and but I also I just didn't like I you know I'd go to the clubs and I'd see shows and I, I to this day I'm still just, well it's anathema to me but like the look of 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 musicians and like the cool factor of it and the striking a pose and the everything that didn't have anything to do with music I just I didn't I didn't fit in it and I didn't like it it felt like the opposite of what I was interested in and I had this moment when I was like 22 or so um when I went to this bluegrass festival in Tacoma, Washington called Wintergrass, it still is going. And it was, they had it at the, then at the downtown Sheridan in Tacoma and you walk in the front doors of the lobby and I'll just never forget it. I was like probably 22 years old and I walk in the, the doors and there's just music everywhere and it's being played in like little circles of people. And it's like these, you know, fat old grandpas and these little kids and fiddles. And it, it just blew me away to this day. I still go to all the festivals whenever I can. I go to Spigma is a big one that they have. It's a big picking conference. That's in a hotel in February. Okay. And, um, it just like lights me on fire because it's people that are just want to play music together. Mm -hmm. And then also in the case of bluegrass, there's like, very good musicians yeah and but you would never know it if you saw them in normal life you know right. and that attraction that's what I, I mean it's a similar kind of attraction i have toward um all of the sort of efforts and be it acting or or writing in this case too it's just like anytime this is, my favorite books are when i can when it seems like the person telling the story there it's costing them something mm. you know like, or, or there's just something burning inside between those words that is trying to get out and that's different than like a literary um wonder kind or you know mastery mm -hmm. there's something higher than mastery for me yeah right no that that all makes a lot of sense um and talking about you know being lit up i i think when I'm when I'm writing and in those magic moments where I'm in the flow of it and I'm just um, inside, I, I, that's like that's always the word that I find myself 
um, gravitating towards. You're just in it. You, it's like creativity can be like a room, very safe kind of bubble room. Um, and I, I feel like uh, in the world otherwise, you know, it's so hard to be exactly in the moment. Um, and so I think what you're talking about with, you know, the, the, the literature that sticks, somehow those authors have found their way into that room and costing something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's going away to go inside this place. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's going, what do you mean? It's going away. You mean like culturally? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I mean that, um, the author has, has left whatever is outside the mm -hmm. bubble and gone inside that. Um, I just recently read the short story because the movie is coming, and I know I'm a couple of years behind on it, but Cat Person. Mm. Um, and it was in The New Yorker a few years ago and went kind of viral. Uh, I have to write this down here. And, you know, I think somebody could say, oh, the writing isn't necessarily profound. It's not really, you know, deeply literary. But for whatever reason, I think it feels very true and mm. very uncomfortable. And... Mm. Um, and I had a hard time looking away as a reader. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's putting that magic to work. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is a good jumping off point to the, the other part, the other part, another part of your career, which is, I mean, you're an active creative in pursuit of your own dreams and mysteries. And I just finished that essay that you were kind enough to send me. And it touched my heart. And oh, I also you. saw myself inside of it, you know, and I think that a lot of people would and maybe um quick question is is that available is it published or is it on a website or anything or um it, it's not i've sent it out um so fingers crossed um but um we'll, we'll and if worse for comes to worse uh well no, i shouldn't say if worse comes to worse that's exactly what i shouldn't say um but uh the porch has a pretty great blog now uh, another one of our new iterations called the screen porch mm. and so susanna has said susanna was the one who said send it out and um so i wouldn't have even thought of it i wrote it for an assignment for a class mm -hmm. that i took this summer um well it has that quality of like something that needs to be said by the person saying it it's there's no showy offiness of it there's mm. a confessional tone mm. as yeah. well right. um, but it's light and it's funny and it's um right well i think anyone who's been an artist has experienced in whatever form that crazy swing between validation and rejection yeah um you get somebody loves what you did and you feel so it feels so good to be loved for what you you know created but then it gets rejected and or or somebody hates it you know in a workshop um and it does a number on the ego for sure and yeah. so there has to be that other you know which is kind of what the essay is about the balance between the ego and the spirit which is what keeps you returning every morning yeah it is um and on the ego side of it or the validation side it's so um uh, it's funny how thirsty we are as human beings i think for validation of any kind and i think artists and sensitive people are you know multiply that by <laughs> 10 and you you get especially when i think when you're young and really the the world is full of possibility and you don't know what's what's your way forward or right. what you know uh and maybe you make a small play in that direction and then somebody says 
hey, that's good. Yeah. That is very powerful. Yeah. And it's it's crazy how um, vulnerable you are in, at those early ages. And, and you always are, but you get a little bit tougher maybe, or you don't survive or you quit. Um, but when you're young, <clears throat> that little bit of encouragement can send you off in a, in a direction that you never have, would have done. And the person doing the encouraging, who knows how serious they were or qualified, right. but you don't know that. Right. And that is, a da- it's pretty dangerous. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I honestly sometimes wonder if that, that short story I wrote in college that my professor and classmates loved, if that was just the thing to make me say, okay, now I know I'm going to do it for my life. You know, like mm-hmm. it could have just as well been that I solved a problem in a biology class i never took biology so i don't even know um but uh anyway yeah that validation definitely yeah and you know maybe the other side of it too i'm thinking about this is that there's some kind of um validation shaped hole in a certain kind of person's heart that they're just like all they want is an excuse to pursue it you don't know that yourself you know you might not know that but given that that encouragement all of a sudden you're like whoa i've never felt this way before right. you didn't know that that was so power like that was so important to you until it yeah. happened and then you're like i want i want to do that again like maybe this is um but yes then, then you send out then not too much farther and then you walk into a, a rock that was left there for you to trip over <laughs> and many more after that yeah. so okay so let's talk about your journey a little bit you um you had an early, you know, just a call, a positive experience in college. That's yeah. not an outlandish thing. Um, and you were interested in pursuing it, but you were also young. And um, so you were like a ski bum, right? Yeah. For a good while in Aspen. Well, uh, I was a ski bum for a year in, oh, in uh, no, in Vail. And um, <clears throat> I applied, I, you know, I had gone to. Uh, Colorado College, which is a small liberal arts uh, mm. college in Colorado, and I knew I wanted to stay in Colorado. I did no homework beyond knowing I wanted to stay in Colorado, and I thought I hadn't lived in Boulder yet. I'll just apply to Boulder. I- I- I'm sure I'll get in. <laughs> you know, just didn't even like. I-, I did not read any of the books about what do you look for in MFA. I- they didn't yeah. even have an MFA program. It was a master's in. Um, I guess it was a master's in creative writing, but. Uh, and it was very avant-garde, which my writing is, is not. Mm. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. But uh, I just assumed I would go. And uh, when I got that rejection letter, I just, um, I remember being so just kind of uh, plowed because I, if I stayed another year doing that, I was having too much fun. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh and, and I think one thing I learned in my year of delivering pizzas and flipping hamburgers and uh, weeding um, flower beds is that I actually kind of like, um, I kind of like interacting with people and using my brain. Um, so that was one of the takeaways. So grad school was not the next step. Mm. Becoming an English teacher was. And then I circled back to the grad school idea. I see. Years later. And so you uh, let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, your experience writing and trying to publish. And um, you wrote uh, this, I'm remembering this from the essay. So correct what I get wrong. But um, you kind of you wrote like a little short story 
and you were at a writing conference and the author this is again another piece of valid yes, validation yes. that sends you careening forward um the author holding this panel had requested that people submit their stories and she went through and she just kind of ripped them apart lightheartedly but right. savagely um and then she got to yours and she was like this i could spend i could spend 400 per pages Page. with this voice and that was your Yours and I, I mean, how would you how would you not think? Well, that's a pretty resounding clue, um, right? That maybe there is something here. Yeah, and this person's a professional now, right? It was and, Dorothy Allison who wrote "Bastard Out of Carolina," and she probably would not remember that moment, remember me, but it sent me for six years writing my first novel. <laughs> yeah, and um, so you finished that, and then I, I, yeah, there's a piece, there's parts of this I really want to talk about, um, but you you. You finished that, and then you reached out to an agent. An agent kind of got involved tangentially. There, she was like, "Well, some revisions. Maybe I'll shop it around." So you're excited about that, and then while you're doing it, you made you kind of self printed some copies. I got one of those, and yeah. um, uh, and so the your closest friends and colleagues uh, got got to enjoy the book. Um, and then the agent was like, "Actually, no, right." And almost like over a year later, and and she had asked that I not send it elsewhere in the meantime. Yeah, and that's that's also just insult to injury because uh, you were in in waiting, right? And also not there's a bunch of agents in the world, and right, um, but you weren't gonna do that out of respect or hope to yeah. her, and then. So you think you wrote kind of in a funny way in the essay that the you know agents assume these larger than life proportions to authors who think that they just hold the fate of yes. the sun, moon, and stars in their hands, and really they're just people also beholden to the bosses and yeah. the side guys of the day, and right. Um, and if they don't think they can sell it, who, you know. who's to really blame them uh, except the right. author whose part they break? <laughs> um, right. But you. Was that didn't I, did I read that right too? That um, she was she said something about well because you've self printed it nobody else is going to be interested. She so didn't there was a penalty say that. There? That was that was um, just sort of the advice I, I got at the time. Um, and at that point, by that point, I think I was already uh, had you know started working on the next novel and had maybe talked to some people saying who said you should probably just put that one in the drawer because now that it's been self-published um even though it hadn't been self-published like formally not formally i mean gosh if you read the typos in the first four pages yeah. you know it wasn't too formal in the whole it process just a thick pamphlet <laughs> but anyway but it didn't you know, have an isbn I, though is right or anything like that uh -uh. yeah no. so the library of congress wasn't aware no I didn't. So this this is what I wanted to talk about for a second because I was just like, yeah, um, that seems like uh, a cautionary tale toward anyone who would want to act cavalierly in the name of getting their beloved work out there, come hook or crook or whoever, whichever gatekeeper accepts or rejects them. And I, but I had a completely different experience with that right. where I did exactly that right. what you did and. Yeah. Um, I, maybe I got lucky right. or, or what, but I felt like because, um, the book didn't exist. Like I, my, I had a book published, um, called medium hero, this collection of short stories that I on purpose 
self-released it, but I didn't even release it. I printed it and mm. then sold it at shows uh, for a couple of months. And then it was at that show with the porch that mm-hmm. um, the talent buyer uh, discovered it, but it didn't have an ISBN or anything. And to me, that was like, it didn't really exist. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, so I was super naive, but um, also very lucky. Um, maybe what I want to say is like, isn't there something to be said for just getting your book out there and having somebody be able to get it on Amazon? Totally. I mean, I think there's so many different ways these stories can shake down. And, and honestly, uh, it's possible that I... I didn't, you know, I didn't tr- try hard enough to, as it turns out, I like writing a lot better than I do, uh, <laughs> wow. sending stuff out sure. and doing my homework and, and all that. But, um, but you're, you know, I think the general thinking on self, self-publishing is if you happen to sell a lot of copies and it does well, then that changes the tune yeah. of, of the agents and editors. Um, I don't know, you know, what the magic number is for, you know, for does well, but also so much of it is just, um, you know, putting yourself out there and, uh, yeah, authors aren't, are, are famously not terribly good at that <laughs> part of the job, the marketing right. bit. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, what we're talking about is, is sort of ancient history. I mean, that book was, um, you know, I, I finished that book in probably 2012 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's there's another book since then that has an equally kind of convoluted story within it. Um, in terms of its release or in terms of its its journey. To, yes. To bookhood. Uh, which right now is kind of at a dead end mm-hmm. <laughs> until, you know. But yeah, uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't take book number two and put it on Amazon in Maybe, maybe. I think I want to try some other things first. I think yeah. the independent small presses, uh, I just I have to, you know, once again, I've kind of started working on something else that I find a whole lot more fun than, but I, I need to be better. I guess uh, I need to be better about, um, d- d- you know, doing the legwork. <sighs> totally. I mean, if this is, I'm not, far be it for me to press you on that account. I think the whole thing is uh, uncomfortable and highly uh, unpredictable and it's a wild west in all industries right now yeah um, i yeah. do uh, maybe if i could for a second just share a little bit of my own journey with that Please, is that yeah. or my own thinking or something but um i wrote a novel last fall um kind of in white heat where i was just like all right two thousand words a day and um i was like the goal fifty thousand words so i knew if i do it five days a week nine weeks from now I'll have our first draft and I just made sure and hit the daily goals and then I hit the, hit the big goal. You're so good that way. Um, I don't know about that, but, uh, it's kind of hard on my wife sometimes, (laughs) uh, but, but I have, I had and have this novel and then I revised it and I was like, I think this is this, I'm happy with this. And also I, I had a, a larger goal with that book, which was that, um, I'm working on this TV show to sell this, um, this thing. And, I've also, you know, when I, you listen to books on tape sometimes when you're driving around, mm-hmm. I just listen to YouTube uh, videos about every aspect of indie movie making, filmmaking, mm-hmm. marketing. I also listen to it. There's another um, a channel on YouTube called Film Courage, which is uh, mostly interviews with 
people on the writing side of the film. I find it to be really valuable. And, and lately she started posting a lot of just straight up writers talking about their own process and getting it out there and their own perspective. It's uneven. And you know, it's uh, with anyone's opinion, you kind of have to just weigh it against your gut and all the other opinions of people. Mm. Cause there's not, you know, there's many ways to the top of the mountain or even the mid middle part of the mountain. But, um, this idea in the indie world is to create, you know, they call it IP, um, intellectual property for an idea. And like the gold standard of that would be like the Marvel universe is about as big as intellectual properties there gets so that everybody's so familiar with these iconic characters, Batman. Mm-hmm. So when they know that Batman, they're like, Oh man, that's gonna, That's why they keep making Batman movies. And so to build out this like idea of this world that you want to sell, in as many ways as possible. Um, one of those ways would be to write a book about it. And so that's what I did. I was like, okay, I'm going to write, a, I, I'm going to build this IP for Morse code and write a novel for it. And I've handed it around to, on the low to several agents. And it's like interest. Uh, and like, let's see what happens. And, um, I, and I have reason to believe the genuine fans of it. Um, but there's a part of me that's like, I ain't getting any younger here. And I also like where I'm, you know, like you, and I think like most creative people and or writers is that I'm interested in, that was like three projects ago, like where right. I'm living at in my, yeah. in my mind, a heart. And so I'm, you know, this thing is just sitting here. So there's this part of me that's just like, I always sort of want to see it every project through. Right. Um, and, I just reached out to one of the agents that was interested and it was just like, you know, is it okay? Like, I didn't know how to put it, but I'm just like, I'm just sort of blunt and stupid and it works for me sometimes. I was just like, is it, can I just put this out? Like, I don't, I just want to get it out. So it's available because I have enough fans of, you know, some people will be interested in it. And she was just like, you know, just give me till January. Just hold up. Cause you do. Yeah. Cause you do have, um, you can only, you know, spend that, that coupon one time right is the right. is the tough part and you don't know when to do it and you, you can anybody yeah. you, can, you can cash your own coupon these days right so it's so hard to know uh when to just you know jettison wait or just get it out there and move on mm-hmm. i think most of the time it's good to just get out there and move on but um so she's shopping around in the meantime yeah okay yeah. well that's good I mean, yeah yeah, it's good. I just don't, yeah, I'm just impatient. <laughs> um, anyway, so so there's uh, good things and bad. I, here's one thing I do think that authors just need to own. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm framing it as a question, even though it doesn't sound like it. So I'd love to know your perspective. But the publishing world is so different, I think, even than it was 10 years ago in, in not a great way because it's the corporatization of everything has made everybody extremely conservative in terms of what they're willing to take chances on. And so it behooves any creative person, be they a writer or a musician or a filmmaker to handle as much of the marketing that their poor little Mm. hearts can bear Mm -hmm. because that marketing that you do yourself is only going to help you, um, in terms of whatever deal you may or may not strike with Mm -hmm. somebody who can help you get it to a larger audience, Mm -hmm. because all of those people are looking for name, you know, social media that they can draw Mm -hmm. on, like whatever you're doing to help yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really hard for, um, introverts in particular. And it's hard for me. I I mean, I do it against Kyle and I talk about a, a producer, um, 
it's an uncomfortable game to play. There's people mm-hmm. that are sort of born for it, but there's they're not usually right. good writers. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I, I hear that um, all the time. Uh, it's, it's really just um, very few who get a lot of marketing support from their publishers anymore. And mm. so it does fall on the author. And, um, you know, plenty of authors who... I don't really do social media because social media is a distraction um, yeah. from writing, and yeah. and so if you, you know if you don't have that, well, there's one thing, um, and and then building a social media, you know, yeah, it's a it's a whole algorithm that uh that's no fun for the introverted author, but at the same time, um, it is it is what it is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I talk, um, I've talked to several, you know, whatever. It's a thing that comes up with any entrepreneurially minded indie person that you kind of have to do. You have to make peace with it or not. Mm. But um, some of the good advice, I've, I mean, the, the part that I hate about it most is the time that mm. it takes to do mm. it. And, mm-hmm. and then this sense of obligation that um, you feel not i mean to do it but like it's not enough to just do it on one freaking platform but then there's another one and another right, one and that's like right. wait i got to do all of this yeah and at some point you just have to be like okay i'm not like i just decided like i'm not on tiktok okay i just can't that's just one can't platform it's a bridge yeah. too far people and um and so you kind of you know the people that are really doing it well hire people to do it right and there's that too there's that wonderful. too you do a great job with your news uh newsletter um, well, that's thank you. That's nice of you to say. And I think that part of the secret of doing the social media thing or any sort of marketing is like finding which one sort of resonates with you best. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that like I'm I'm, I'm a long form guy. I like mm-hmm. books. I like movies. I mm-hmm. like long conversations. And so the newsletter thing for me is a good fit because mm-hmm. I can put a lot of time into yeah. it once a month right. and give people something. And it's not going to be for everybody, but the kind of people that are going to like me, it's right. for them. Right. And it does work. Yeah. It, you have a voice, it. which I'm sure is in, in the book um, you've got and was certainly in Medium Hero, but you have a very engaging uh, voice, narrative well, voice. Th- um, that's nice of you to say. Um, let's talk more about you and uh, the, your writing habit. And like, so we talked a little bit about the ego side of it, um, and you know the the rejection right. and the from out there. But from the other side of it, what keeps you there? Yeah, is what is the real power of of writing? Right. And let's talk a little bit about that. Like, you have uh, some of your writing came out of you know just journaling, and you've you keep like several journals, or you have at points in your life. Right, so I almost feel like I have a divided writing life. Um, I have a very active journaling life, and it is something that has happened very organically, starting you know as a seventeen-year-old, angry, you know, whatever, <laughs> adults, rules, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but. Uh, it has become sort of so journaling. I think for me is my my mechanism for an examined life. Um, so it's a way to self-reflect. It is uh, a way to kind of take the scramble of my brain and make it sit still. Um, 
I just feel like if I'm sometimes when I'm really trying to make a decision, I'm like, where's my journal? You know, I've, I've almost become, you know, that writing to think has become mm-hmm. such a, a part of me. And so I've, I've gotten very excited about teaching kind of writing in the examined life. And, and there's a whole nother new thing with the porch that maybe we'll talk about soon writing for um, writing for good. But then there's the fiction writing, and that's that's sort of a different animal. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, they, they use the same tools, pen, paper. I do a lot of, I fill a lot of blank pages. But um, I think the act of writing fiction, to me, if I do it every single morning, by 8 a.m., I feel kind of grounded into myself and into my day and whatever happens from that point forward i'm sort of okay and it's it's interesting i don't don't know why that is that fiction that you know spending my time with uh people who don't exist and having them do things you know it's things that are true but not true it's the lie that tells the truth I think a lot about it, but obviously story is part of our DNA and um, and so writing fiction is is uh, you know working that muscle of imagination and order in the sake of story. So and it's a, I mean it is something of a spiritual exercise in in the sense that um, this I'm coining this phrase maybe right now, but um, it's better to dance than to talk about dancing. And to me, fiction is dancing and nonfiction books are very valuable. And I, I discipline, discipline myself to read one, every other book I read at times. I can't stand it. Sometimes I have to go back to fiction. Um, but, but to me, like nonfiction books are very like pointed at something and, you know, like there's a huge value in clear, concise writing and I, I love it, you know, I, but there's something so magical about fiction writing that tells you something truer than the truth yeah in a way that you you don't have to memorize a passage or understand an abstract comment or, or concept you can just remember the story and stories are they're so powerful that way because mm-hmm. everyone can remember a story like an outline of a story that means something to them they can right. tell you back that st- same story they read or heard or you right. know because it, it resonates with something underneath it's yeah. very feel like Serious. it's a way of examining the human experience from sort of a sideways lens. Yeah. And you, you know? use the word in your essay. Um, I'm going to say it was empathetic. Um, and it, but that is so true about great fiction writing mm-hmm. is that um, I think that great fiction writing. And uh, again, this is more of a something that I'd love you like your perspective on rather than a decree. But um great fiction writing it doesn't take a position exactly mm-hmm. it's kind of a there's something exploratory in its essence about it. it great great fiction writing a lot of fiction it does like have a perspective mm-hmm. and this is what i want you to get out of it and that's not very interesting um whereas the great books and great stories do have like even the bad guy you kind of can see a reason why he was that where she mm-hmm. was the way that she was and you have an empathy for that mm-hmm. person um I think that's why I like novels so much more than movies. It's very hard to do a movie. I love movies, but they're, they, they can't quite get at the depth that a, that a real novel can get at because just because you don't have time in in 90 minutes to really make that bad guy kind of have 
a strong degree of of, of right. em- empathetic tension. Right. No, that's a good good point. I've been thinking about. I sometimes have uh, conversations with my husband, who has used to be a great reader, and and he's right in saying now that TV is so good that it's you know it's almost hard to justify reading a book when there's so much good TV. And I always say, you know, the difference is interiority, really, uh, like. Mm. The author is able to explore interiority in a way that um, movie and TV can't. Yes. Although great, I mean, you could make an argument that great TV manages it anyway through dialogue and and other things. Um, <laughs> it is really good. There's just like there's a little bit of a get off my lawn kind of quality that I have toward that stuff. I watch a fair amount of TV. I watch plenty of TV with um me and my girl do it's there's something what i like about tv is you can share it you know books are so in Mm. they're so interior like you Mm. said um but in in books what i like about books is you do the work it's like riding a bike the difference between riding a bike and riding one of them electric Electric scooters all these kids are riding around (laughs) these they're not getting any exercise and they're just scooters doing all the work right that's exactly it and when you're tired at the end of the day, I get TV is easier, you know, but uh, but it is definitely a more active. It's more of a conversation between mm-hmm. reader and writer. Um, but uh, as far as empathy goes, I think about this a lot. There was a study in 2013 that came out um, and I was a high school English teacher at the time. But the the headlines were basically people who read are better people <laughs> and here, here. <laughs> so of course you know i'm rushing <laughs> into my class see see but um the the basically the um data behind it was they were you know had different test groups people who read literary fiction people who read pulp fiction and people who don't read and um in terms of how you can measure empathy uh people who read particularly more sophisticated uh probably interior books have higher levels of empathy mm. um and the, you know it makes sense like if you've read a lot of books you've stepped inside a lot of lives mm-hmm. you've lived different times you've you've you know worn so many different um skins mm-hmm. uh and and you know what it is to be someone who is not yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's good for us, I think. Absolutely. So and you when, know what it is to be someone who's not yourself in a way that's safe. Right. You know, it might affect you psychologically and, and does if it's, you know, has it, it worth its salt. But you, at the end of the day, put the book down and go have dinner with your right. wife. Right. And that's a good point, too. I read a book called The Story Animal recently. But one of the reasons that story is part of our DNA, you know, in the same sort of evolutionary way as, you know, food and and procreation and all that is that by by hearing story we put ourselves in situations so we're a little better prepared um for when the situation arises Mm. i think it's slightly slightly harder to argue that than food um (laughs) or sex but uh but but i think that's interesting to think about and i mean because story's been around a long time um so yeah, that's sort of I, I get on that soapbox sometimes, particularly when I'm teaching um, story basics or foundations of fiction. I really think it's cool to think like I had a friend who once came to visit me in college, and I was in that moment of falling in love with fiction writing, 
And she said, so you just like sit around and make up stories? And it sounded so um, uh, frivolous, I guess, mm. when she put it that way. But yeah, sit around and make up stories and, and, and use language to make it real to the reader. And so I don't think it's frivolous. Um, well, obviously not. <laughs> obviously <laughs> you know, there's not. a passage I remember in a prayer for Owen Meany um, uh, that uh, he, the the narrators, the 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 narrators, the writer, it's written in first person, and he, I think he like lives with his mother. This is t- ten or fifteen years ago, and um, it takes place over a long period of time uh, between the time when before and after everyone had a television set in their house, and his mother got a television set at some point, and then it never came off. And she always disparaged him for many things, but one of them was that he just was always scratching on a piece of paper. But she loved stories and she loved TV, yeah. but she never made the connection that somebody that had to write the- those <laughs> yeah, things that she likes so much. Right. And that's how you know people don't, that people love their TV shows, but they think yeah. that to actually sit there and write a story is a complete waste of time. And I don't, I don't honestly don't disagree. It's, it's, I wonder <laughs> You know, there's a lot of things that you can do um, quali- that qualitatively improve other people's lives uh, than to do this thing that you may or that may you may or may not have something to show for it at the end. Right. Right. That said, I choose to do it, but I recognize the argument against it. Sure. Well, my lawn's not mowed very well. At all. <laughs> um, and maybe that's not bad. You know, like J.K. Rowling's when she talked about. Uh, writing the Harry Potter books with the very beginning when she was a single mom, you know, working at the publisher, um, they're like, how did you manage to do that? Having the job. And, and she was just like, the dishes were never washed. The house was filthy. It's <laughs> yeah. like, those are the choices you make, you know, now right. would that we could know that we were just going to be JK Rowling someday and it'd make it a right. lot easier to yeah. make that choice. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I do, uh, I made a conscious decision 10 ish years ago that to start watching TV because I never did. And it was really like a part of that's probably due to me never having a very, I've never had a community of readers. I've never been, been part of that really mm-hmm. like wherever I lived, I was just kind of an outsider with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and maybe that's everybody, maybe every reader feels that way. But in Nashville, particularly um, when I moved here, uh, I was very like music, everything mm-hmm. and hanging out with musicians and musicians that don't read a, a whole bunch and mm-hmm. I'm not going to disparage them because they're busy making incredible uh, works of art of their own. But um, I, I feel like I'm, I am on a crusade of that's part of probably what this podcast is about a little bit is to instill in people like this as much as I can, like a love of, of reading, at least a curiosity about cracking open a book mm-hmm. because it is so cheap. I mean, mm. it's very expensive in time, mm-hmm. but it's it, it just takes nothing to sit down and read 10 pages of something and mm-hmm. you're richer for it. Mm-hmm. And you can go anywhere in the world and it's right. like you can go anywhere in history. You can converse with anybody from all points in time Yeah, and it's all open to you and it's available right now. It's inc- it's such a it's so rich um, and it doesn't even cost seventeen ninety nine a month. 
<laughs> anyway um okay that's my my soapbox but uh so wonderful that you can consider like i feel like we didn't get deep enough into the um the writing pursuit but you'd write on a daily basis still you you write on a daily basis you have your yeah. spot that you write at you write I from i do and i split my time these days between nashville and swanee so i've got spot in both houses mm-hmm. uh but yeah, alarm goes off at five thirty, which isn't that early in the big. You know, some people say, "Oh my it's god!" Early. Um, <laughs> but but by the time I actually sit down with my French press coffee and dog fed and let out, it's usually six fifteen and six fifteen to eight fifteen. Um, those are kind of my writer hours, mm-hmm. and uh, so it makes my process slow. I I would would love at some point to do four hours instead of two hours. But uh, that will have to come as I am less involved with the porch when I start getting old. I mean, just <laughs> the fact that everybody has to f- make their uh, pact with living in the real world. And yeah. most people can't seem to defend that even two hours right. a day. So pro- right. major, major props to you oh, for I mean, keeping that sacred. When I was a teacher in the high school, I got up, I, I guess... I guess it was probably still five, five or five thirty. But I mean, I had to leave the house at six thirty, so I was very happy if I got thirty or forty minutes back in those days. So that first novel took a long time to write. Of course, the second novel did too. I'm just slow. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, having your own space is like that. A spot is a huge. You know, everybody says that. You know, and that's my I have the little corner place. That's like my favorite place in the world, right over there. And nice. that's my thing. The first thing yeah, in the morning, probably. have like a little light, and you know, I have my coffee, and that's two hours a day. You know, or more if I'm like under a deadline or some usually imagined deadline. But um, yeah. Anyway, um, I feel like we've how, how much time are we at, Kyle? About 50 minutes. Okay, this, this is good. So we can just talk about a little bit more. Um, the porch has, you said, 60 offerings this fall? Um, something, yeah, something like that. It's, um, and I should know that number right off the bat. We've uh, we've hired, for the first time, we're, we're up to five full-time employees now, which is Amazing. just wild. Um, because, you know, for so long, we were just such a lean team. Um, but uh, starting in June, we have a full-time director of education, Yurina Yoshikawa, who is awesome. She's a good East Nashvilleian. Oh, cool. Um, and Yurina is, you know, kind of constantly in conversation with teaching artists and people who uh, have ideas for us. So, um, so that is, you know, kind of always happening. Um, we've got a lot of events. We're coming up on our tenth year. Uh, in Are January do... of 2014, I mean, of 2024, yes. we started January 2014. So yeah, we're planning a whole spread of like, it will be a whole year of kind of going big on everything we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Ross Gay coming in for our, uh, for our fundraising event that will be on April 5th. Um, he's awesome. And, uh, we're uh, launching a, a literary magazine. That's another exciting thing called Swing. Um, and uh, it's being launched on October 19th of this year at Analog. Um, and that's really exciting. It's sort of, you know, one of our strategic right visions was to not only, you know, um, teach the craft of writing, but give 
give porch people a place to publish alongside um bigger names you know or more uh known names so um very excited about that happening yeah what to what do you attribute this uh wild demand i mean it's part of part of it's the vision that you and Susanna originally had Mm. part of it's there's some kind of latent thirst um, in Nashville or in yeah. people that you've t- tapped into, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's such an extraordinary gift to the community. I mean, oh, you know, I mean that from yeah. the bottom of my heart. There's, you know, uh, a quick anecdote to that is um, there's this acting studio here in town called the Fourth Wall, um, and they've only been around for like five years. But similarly, the growth has been exponential, and they mm-hmm. went from one class to you know seven and two oh, or three great. teachers and it's hundreds uh-huh. of kids now oh great and there's uh-huh. just like the nashville 48 hour film festival which is kind of a um well a yearly event that where everybody tries to make you put together a team and try to make a movie in 48 hours um they had hmm. 60 people we just went to our we were part of it this year and um there was a screening last night and tonight um although this will air in the future so this happened a while ago uh but um, there were 60 teams. It was the second highest wow. in the country. And wow. that was is a direct result of all of these kids interested yeah. in film. So you guys have done the, you know, similar and probably pulled more people in uh, mm-hmm. with the Porsche. So, well, I do think Nashville, um, you know, has a creative, you know, creative heritage, uh, creative economy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an attractive place for creatives to move to. It's um, it's just part of the ecosystem of, of Nashville. And so that that's lucky for us um, that we're here and not someplace. Although, you know, who knows? Uh, there are some great literary centers and places that aren't Nashville, um, mm-hmm. too. Uh, so, I yeah, as far as what do I attribute the growth to? Well, the other thing is the pandemic was interestingly... Um, not a bad thing for for the porch. Mm. Uh, God, I got to be careful, you know, well. saying that. But um, but we, you know, in March we're like Zoom. What's Zoom? And mm-hmm. uh, and by April we had students from thirty five different states and fifteen different countries. Amazing. Um, we thought we were done. You know, mm-hmm. we were having emergency board meetings in March of twenty twenty. Like, okay, we're, we're you know what's worst case scenario and in april we're wildly busy um and so now half of our offerings are virtual so that's another thing is we're not while we are very much rooted um in being in nashville we are also something of a you know national organization just in terms of our classes Mm -hmm. yeah so um (laughs) Well, uh, I'm so grateful to you for being here and sharing a little of your time and perspective and experience. And um, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to be part of the porch in some small way. You're part of the story. And um, I'm serious. I'm going to take a class this fall. Yeah. Uh, You know what you should do? I could see you being really good at this. So I mentioned this writing for good program. Pitch me. All right. So I've been teaching workshops at Mending Hearts, which is for women in addiction recovery. And um, they're expressive writing more than creative writing. But now uh, from that experience, we have a cohort of about 30 teaching artists who've done a little bit of orientation training. And now we're creating partnerships with all sorts of um, 
organizations that uh, serve vulnerable populations and bringing writing uh, workshops to them and and paying our teaching artists and also finding funding so that these organizations don't have to pay for for it. But I could see you doing a little songwriting, film writing, fiction writing. Um, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Um, well, we'll talk off camera. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here, Katie McDougall. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. The Morse Code Podcast is produced by Corby Lanker and Kyle Noctegall in East Nashville, Tennessee. Our executive producer is Randa Newman. You can find full video of this and all past episodes by visiting morsecodepodcast.com.